Alright, let's study God's Word. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 through 19. That's our text. 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 through 19. The topic we're going to find there is this. The Ammonites disrespect David's men by shaving off half of their beards and cutting off their outer garments at the buttocks. The title of our message, Be Dist and Buttocks. Let's have a word of prayer for me. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you're a good and gracious God. And as we approach your word, Lord, we do it with great anticipation, knowing that you have uh, caused it to be alive and powerful. And you promised that it would never return void, but it will accomplish a purpose, Lord. And so I pray that it would in the hearts of believers this morning. And perhaps, Lord, if there are any here that are not believers, they've never been born again by your Holy Spirit, that your spirit would use these words, this word, to convict them of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come so that they could know the glory and the wonder of your love. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Operation Alka was an attempt by five Christian missionaries from the United States to bring the gospel to the Huarani people of the rainforest of Ecuador. The Huarani, also known by a pejorative name, the Alcas, which is a word for enemies, that they were an isolated tribe known for their violence against both their own people and any outsiders who entered their territory. With the intention of being the first Christians to ever evangelize the previously uncontacted Huarani, the missionaries began making regular flights over Huarani settlements in September of 1955, dropping gifts. After several months of exchanging gifts, on January 3rd, 1956, the missionaries established a camp at Palm Beach, they called it, a sandbar along the Korari River, a few kilometers from Horani settlements. Their efforts came to an abrupt end on January 8, 1956, when all five men, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian, were attacked and speared by a group of Horani warriors. Among Christians, the men are considered martyrs. Among non-Christian anthropologists, their initial contact is criticized as having opened a door to the gospel, which led to the eventual deterioration of the native culture of the Horani people. Their story is an extreme example of the kind of spiritual tension that Christians face every day. We are tasked by Jesus Christ with bringing the gospel to the whole world. While for some that means going to people like the Huarani, for most of us it means our family and friends and neighbors and co-workers. We will definitely meet with opposition. We probably won't be martyred at the end of a spear, but often we are uh, treated poorly, even shamefully, and humiliated. Nevertheless, we press on as ambassadors for the Lord, knowing that one day the opportunity for the non-believers that we encounter to be saved for eternity will come to an end. Jesus will return and all those who have rejected him will be consigned to eternal punishment. When he does return, we will have already been resurrected or raptured and we will return with him. No longer ambassadors, we are described in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ in that return as being, and I quote, the armies of heaven. Our text in 2 Samuel, you're going to see it also features ambassadors and armies. 
It can illustrate for us what it means to be ambassadors who anticipate returning one day as the Lord's army. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, as an ambassador, you need the courage to be humiliated. And number two, as an army, you need the patience to be vindicated. Let's take a look, first of all, in the first five verses at being humiliated. And let's start by getting some perspective on humiliation. We don't mean that we act in weird ways to bring shame upon ourselves. It doesn't mean we have to dress funny or live in poverty. It's not something we go out of our way and bring upon ourselves. For our purposes this morning, Christian humiliation means you are willing to endure whatever consequences might befall you as an ambassador tasked with sharing with others the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just what comes with the territory when you are out as an ambassador. We'll see that it requires courage, spiritual courage. The five men martyred by the Horani tribe were humiliated. Do you think of them as weak? As being shamed? No, we think they were Christian heroes of the faith. And so are all those who are out on the front lines, ambassadors for Jesus Christ, being humiliated in various ways. And so let's take a look at the ambassadors in our text and see what we can learn. Verses 1 and 2, it happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, uh, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. In the preceding chapter, we talked a great deal about David desiring to show the kindness of God. His actions spoke of God seeking to show kindness to every member of the human race by extending his grace and mercy to save them. The emphasis in this chapter is on David's servants acting as his ambassadors, extending his kindness. If you're just reading this uh, chapter by chapter, verse chapter 9 and then chapter 10, they start very similar. And they use the same phrase, David wanted to show kindness. David wanted to show kindness. But here we're talking about him sending his servants. And so in these verses, in this chapter, we see ourselves as the ambassadors of David's greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has sent us out with the good news. What is the good news? The good news is that God has made a way for lost mankind to be saved. Born dead in trespasses and sins, we can be born again by believing in Jesus Christ in His dying on the cross as our sacrifice and our substitute. Going to the Ammonites is not an easy mission. The king of Ammon who had died, Nahash, had been a cruel enemy to Israel. Probably when David was a fugitive hiding from Saul, Nahash had aided him in some way, but it was in order to oppose Saul. It was because he was the enemy of Israel that he aided someone he thought was Saul's enemy. There's no solid evidence, however, that Nahash's son Hanun would want to establish diplomatic relations with Israel. This is an Operation Alka. It's possibly a suicide mission. The ambassadors were sent directly into enemy territory with nothing but their testimony that David wanted to show kindness to the Ammonites. And so verse 3, 
The princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city and spy it out and overthrow it? Hanun was hurting. His father had died. He was making a a transition to be uh, taking over the government of Ammon. When someone around you is hurting, going through a time of transition like this, you feel like it's a good time to show God's love. Often God does use you to comfort others with the comfort you've received from Him. But sometimes your talk about God and His love is resented. God is blamed for the loss, for the tragedy, for the suffering. You're trying to share the love of God and they look at you and they say, if God is such a God of love, Why did my loved one die? Why didn't he intervene? Why this tragedy? Why this crisis? Where is God when it hurts? And and as often as not, you're resented because they don't have the, the real picture. They don't understand that it is because of sin that these things take place and that God has done everything divinely possible to deal with the problem of sin. And and nevertheless, they don't understand that, and so your efforts are resented. I I know I've had that experience before. And and if you're not, if you've never have, it'll shock you the first time you start sharing the love of God with somebody who's really bitter about what they believe God has allowed in their life. The Ammonites were also paranoid that their city walls would be breached. They didn't want anyone to upset their lifestyle, especially the religious Israelites. Just so people in the world act to defend their lifestyles. They have some idea, and it's usually an incorrect idea, that accepting Jesus into their lives is going to ruin all of their fun and their future hopes. At the very least, they're going to lose their Sunday mornings. They won't, they'll have to go to church. Uh, you know, so they, they understand certain peripheral ideas about Christianity. Mostly wrong. Uh, about what it means to be a Christian, and they're not ready to give all of that up, all this wonderful life that they're living. They don't understand that they're not giving up anything, that they're gaining eternal life. They're gaining a relationship with God. They're gaining purpose and meaning and all of those things. Uh, And so initially, in our contacts with them, it can be, hey, I like my life. I I don't want what you're selling, basically. I don't want to give up what I've got. I know I've got problems and things aren't really going that well if I really analyze my life, but uh, it's, it's my life and I want to defend it. Verse 4, Therefore Hanun took David's servants. He shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. Now regarding beards in the Old Testament, one author states the following, The Bible tells us that a man should have a full, untrimmed beard while trimming the hair on the head to an acceptable length. Much of this centers on the verse in Leviticus 19.27, which should be translated, You must not shave or cut the corners of the hairs of your head, and you are not to trim the edge of your beard. Now, it's interesting to note that not a few modern movements among Christians who want to put you under various strict Old Testament rules for living, nevertheless simultaneously teach that facial hair on men is absolutely unacceptable. It shows you that those who claim you must live according to the law always pick and choose which parts of the law suits their particular preferences. 
And so they're reading along. They say, you know, men have to dress like this and women have to dress like that. And this is the food you need to eat. And these are the days that you need to observe. And then they come to a passage like Leviticus 19.27. And they say, but you not only don't you need to grow your beard long, you shouldn't even have a beard. Why? Uh, We think it's gross. Is it in the law? Yeah, but that part of the law certainly doesn't apply to us. Oh, really? Only the other parts that you like apply. And I'm being a little bit facetious, but it's true. People who want you to live under the law, the law of Moses, they only mean things that appeal to them and that make them feel special. If you want to live under the law, you're going to have a really, really, really hard time trying to be an Old Testament Jew. It's just not going to work for you, ultimately. Uh, But if you want to, then you just shaved for the last time, men. And just just go for it. And uh, God bless you. Now, what about, I I guess I should address this because, you know, it is something people argue about. What about hair and beards? Well, do whatever you want. I don't really care. And in the New Testament, we don't really care whether your hair is short or long or whether your beard is trimmed or unkept or whether you have a beard at all, whether it's a goatee or a patch or whatever you want to do. That's between you and um, whatever you think looks good. It's cultural, not biblical. The only thing we always warn in every area of our life is that you be careful that your habits don't offend and stumble others or detract from your ability to share Christ with others. For example, on, an, on the subject of clothing, when we do mission work to places like uh, Central and South America or uh, parts of Asia, the pastors that we go to support, they almost always invariably ask us to please ask our ladies to not wear shorts. Because in those cultures, not, not because they're Christians, but in the entire culture, it is considered uh, immodest for women to wear shorts. And of course, as Americans, your first reaction is, I wear whatever I want. I'm not under the law. Well, no, that's fine. Then just stay home and wear shorts all you want at home. Why offend somebody? Paul the Apostle went to Timothy, who was a grown man at the time, and he said, hey, you want to go with me on some mission work? Yeah, wow, right on. Okay, you need to be circumcised. (laughs) Why? Because we're going into Jewish territory, and the Jews will be immediately offended if they think that you're going into the synagogue and you're an uncircumcised uh, person because your father was a Jew. Or his mother. Was it his mother or his father? Shout it out. One of his parents was Jewish. And uh, so, so Timothy said, right on. He obviously wasn't an American. <laughs> Otherwise, he would have said no. And so that's, the, that's what you sign up for. So it doesn't really matter what you do with your hair or your beard or anything like that. Or your clothing. As long as it's modest and it meets biblical standards you know, at a level. But if you're going to go someplace where it could offend people then you're going to want to uh, conform to the culture. As far as cutting of the garments to the mid-buttocks, most likely they cut the outer robe and left the undergarments intact. Still, this was like walking around with your underwear exposed. Where do we see that? Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm going to come out with a line of jeans that I call Ammonite jeans. 
that are made, you know, to they kind of, you know how people wear their pants down, you know, low. I'm just going to have the whole buttocks cut out. And, and, and they'll have a little Ammonite jeans and, and uh, it'll, be a, it'll be a witness for Christ. Because people will say, what, what do you mean Ammonite? And I say, well, you know, Second uh, Samuel chapter 10. You know, these genes can save you. Uh, but anyway, I have no comment about those of you who like to show your underwear. Uh, I'm just not looking. But anyway, verse 5, when they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. We all need to regroup from time to time. And that's why I like to think of our meetings here at the church as times to regroup as we come together from our various humiliations and receive encouragement from the Lord. David's ambassadors had the courage to go out among the enemy in enemy territory and offer the kindness of the king. They were willing to die making that offer. They didn't die, but instead they were greatly humiliated. Am I saying then that we need to be willing to die? Well, as an end result, you know the answer to that. The answer is yes. But I got to thinking about this, and really the truth is a lot of people are willing to die in the place of others. They choose it as a career. All of our emergency services people, firemen and police officers, our military and and other such individuals, uh, every day, I mean, they, they may not get up thinking about it, but... They're putting themselves in a position by choice where they say, I'm willing to die for the sake of others, some of whom I don't even know. And I would look at this and say, why shouldn't we be willing at least to do the same for Jesus for a much greater cause? So it's not that you get up every morning and say, "Okay, I'm a Christian, I'm willing to die today. Uh, any more than anybody else does. Uh, but when it comes to it and, and you hear that, well, you, mean, you mean Christians might have to die? Well, sure. Other people die for others. Why not us? Here's the key, though. What we need to do is simply die to ourselves and live for the Lord. And that takes care of the situation. Because we look to Jesus, we see his example of humiliation and we're in awe. He left heaven for me and for you. He came to earth as a man, humbling himself. Then as God the Father's ambassador, as it were, he died on the cross, bearing its shame in order that you and I might be saved. And that's not the end of the story, though, because, you know, God has highly exalted him, raised him up. He's now the King of kings and the Lord of lords. As we look to Jesus as our example and die to ourselves serving him, then we are supplied with courage to be humiliated if necessary. The rest is up to the Lord, isn't it, in terms of who we encounter and how they might react to humiliate us. I mean, you don't know if you're headed into an Operation Alka or if you're just headed into something like an Ammonite presence. Uh, Some of us may go through life never being really totally humiliated. Others, obviously Christians throughout the ages, are martyred for their faith. And so the the thing isn't getting up and, and getting pumped up to die. It's just to die to self and say, Lord, here I am. I'm in Hanford, California. I live in Layton. I live in Riverdale, wherever I happen to live. These are the people I'm around. This is what you've called me to do. I just want to be a witness for you. And if along the way I am humiliated in some way, then that's just the territory of an ambassador. That's just what happens to ambassadors. Chances are I'm not going to be killed for my faith. I could be, but chances are I won't be. 
But something's going to happen if I'm sharing Christ. I'm not going to be the most popular individual. Uh, you know, somebody's going to get the idea that I'm telling them they're a sinner and that they're going to die and go to hell unless they accept Christ as their Savior. And not everybody uh, is excited about that message, at least at first. Now, as an army, you need to uh, uh, the patience to be vindicated. That's the subject of the rest of our chapter. Christians are frequently compared to soldiers in the New Testament. The emphasis in our text is on one particular vital aspect of being in the army of the Lord. We need the patience to stand our ground, being humiliated when necessary, knowing that one day our king will return to vindicate us and make everything right. We'll read this long passage now that covers uh, the initial battle with the Ammonites beginning in verse 6. And we'll uh, see that point made. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Makkah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Beth Rehob, Ishtab and Makkah were by themselves in the field. When Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. And then he said this, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage. Let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. Now, do you notice something about this battle? Something missing from the description of it? No actual fighting is recorded. Joab drew near for the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. Then the people of Ammon also fled before Abishai. So the mercenary soldiers, they saw Joab and they said, we're out of here. And then the people of Ammon who had hired the mercenaries said, well, if the mercenaries aren't going to fight, we're out of here. And so no one fought. No actual fighting. The Israelites took their stand and their enemies fled. As Christians, we are to take our stand, standing on the ground of the victory Jesus Christ won at the cross, and then we watch as our enemies flee. Now, our problem is that we have a very different idea of victory than the Lord does. We want to interpret it as physical victory, while so often the victory He intends for us to experience is spiritual we want circumstances to end while Jesus gives us the strength to endure them. One of the great passages of the Bible to explain this is Romans chapter 8. Let me begin reading in verse 35. Paul the Apostle is the author and he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written... For your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, no height or depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now as our head is spinning with the glory and the wonder of that uh, passage, you realize there are a whole lot of things in those verses that we don't want any part of. Perils and nakedness and deaths and principalities and tribulations. And, and Paul is saying, yeah, yeah, these are the things that you take your stand in and you endure and you see the victory of the Lord. My idea of victory is that my enemies coming at me and they get zapped. They got hit by a meteor. That's victory to me. I'm untouched. I'm unscathed. I don't have to endure anything. The Lord says, no, you don't understand. It's in the humiliation sometimes. It's, it's in the way you're being treated for the sake of the gospel. And then you take your stand and your enemies, they spiritually, they have to flee because you're stronger than they are. The cross has that effect. And, and we just need to get that, as they say, we need to get our, our mind wrapped around that. One of the things that encourages me to endure, to take my stand in the midst of this you know, all of these things that could come against me is that I know my king is coming and he will one day vindicate me. The enemies I have victory over now will be ultimately destroyed then. Now, vindicate doesn't mean vindictive. It's not a matter of revenge. It's a word that means to regain possession under claim of title or property through legal procedure or to assert one's right to possession. And this is exactly what the Lord is going to do one day. He's coming back in His second coming to take fully and finally possession of all that He already won at the cross. And that's the day in which the devil will be defeated finally and hell and death will be defeated finally and uh, eternity will be ushered in. David illustrates that for us in these remaining verses. They're very interesting, beginning in verse 15. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river. And they came to Helam. And Shobach, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan and came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shobach, the commander of their army, who died there. And when all the kings who were servants to Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. Syrians gathered for the fight. David and his armies answered the challenge and defeated their armies. This time, casualties and spoils of the battle are carefully listed for us. But we notice something else. While we know that there must have been fierce hand-to-hand combat that involved each and every soldier, Israeli and Syrian, the writer, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, is careful to say, David gathered all Israel and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shobach, the commander of their army. It is worded as if David alone fought and won the battle. When we return with Jesus, that is exactly how it happens. In Revelation chapter 19, where we are described as his armies returning with him, 
The Lord alone fights. It's the battle of Armageddon. And Jesus destroys all who are arrayed against him. We aren't even properly dressed for battle. We're wearing white robes, the Bible says. And so there's no sense. I mean, we're not wearing Kevlar white robes or anything like that. We don't have any weaponry at all. We're just, we're just a, literally along for the ride back to earth. Even the Lord doesn't fight very much. It says he destroys his enemies by the power of his word. And so this is what the Spirit is illustrating for us in this very real battle that took place in ancient Israel. Let me give you a future timeline compiled from our literal reading of the Bible. We always like to start with the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven. He said that he was going there to build us our heavenly homes and that he would return from there for us. Meantime, Jesus commissioned every Christian to go out sharing the good news. He warned us we'd be humiliated, treated as he was, but we're to see it as an honor to be in such company as the Lord and later his martyrs through the ensuing ages. Jesus and later his apostles and the prophets promised that he would be coming imminently to resurrect and rapture believers from off of the earth. It could and it can happen at any moment. When we are removed in the rapture, a time of trouble will ensue upon the earth like nothing that has ever happened before. It's called the Great Tribulation and it lasts exactly seven years. We're safe in heaven, in resurrected bodies, while the earth is being judged and prepared for the return of the King. At the end of the Great Tribulation, that's when Jesus comes back in His second coming, uh, coming excuse me, and we come with Him as His armies. On the earth, the armies of mankind happen to be fighting against one another in the Middle East. They're gathered in the valley of Megiddo. When the sky splits apart and they see Jesus, they muster against him as a common enemy. It's really not much of a battle, as I've already indicated, this battle of Armageddon. The Lord destroys his enemies by the word of his mouth while we just watch. Then Jesus sets up the kingdom of God on the earth. It's a time of refreshing and restoration that lasts 1,000 years. We're going to be there ruling and reigning with Jesus. At the end of those 1,000 years, human beings who were born on the earth during that time, they're going to mount one final rebellion against God. It's, it's incredible uh, to think of that, but it's true. That rebellion will be unsuccessful. Then at the very end of this current historical timeline, the Lord will raise the dead who have died throughout all the centuries having rejected Jesus Christ. All non-believers from all ages will be judged and sent to their eternal punishment in the lake of fire, which is what we call hell. After that, God creates a new heaven and a new earth, and we and all the believers from all time will live forever in glory. Every tear will have been wiped away, and there will be no sin or suffering. That is what we mean by vindicated. And so today, you know, if you're like me, you're just, you know, regular human being in this body of flesh and somebody treats you badly for the sake of the gospel and you want them flamed out. You're like, you know, John and James, the sons of thunder in the New Testament. What do you think I should do? Jesus says, you oh, call down fire from heaven and waste those people. 
And a lot of times, I mean, you know, we don't literally want to kill people unless we're in L.A. traffic, you know, and then we could do it. If you're on a kilometer, you'd see, you know, you just murdered several thousand people just so you could get there five minutes earlier. By the way, I'm going to forget where I am in the study now, but because um, I forget where I am in my illustration. But anyway, uh, I like bumper to bumper traffic because you, you're less likely to be killed in a head on collision when everybody's going five miles an hour. You just have to be careful, you know, that the motorcycles that sneak in between that you don't happen to be adjusting your mirror at the time, you know, and stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I look for traffic. When is it going to be the heaviest so that I can just crawl along and be safe in Los Angeles? You know, those of you who want to avoid traffic and go 98 miles an hour, God bless you. But uh, anyway, uh, okay, so where am I? Vindication. So today we want vindication. We're at work. People mistreat us in our neighborhood, at school, wherever it is, and we're mistreated for the sake of the gospel. And we want to be vindicated. We want somebody to say, no, you're right and they're wrong and, and, and you're a great person and, and, you know, they shouldn't treat you like that and all of that. We want immediate vindication. I do sometimes because, I mean, you're humiliated in your way. Even Christians don't understand. They look at you and think, well, if God was really on your side, then why are you being humiliated? Why are you being evicted? Why are you out of money? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? It's almost Jobian the way we think. We look at people and say, well, if God was really blessing you, you wouldn't be going through this, even though we know that's not true. And so you're totally humiliated. And you want vindication, but the, Paul would say, look, no, those are the things that happen to you all the time. This is the normal Christian life. Get into being humiliated and know that one day you will be vindicated. But you're not going to be excited about it in that sense because it will be the end of the opportunity for all of those people who mistreated you to come to know Christ. And one of the ways they come to know Jesus Christ is by watching you walk through those times. And the more they pile it on, the more they see that you are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. There's nothing they can bring against you that will shake your faith in the Lord and keep you from sharing the love of God with them. That is what we're talking about. Now, if you put it that way, I think we can be patient as the armies of the Lord. This is the time for ambassadors. You know, a lot of times in, uh, you know, in the world, just nation to nation, there's the time of diplomacy. Don't you hate the diplomacy? I mean, if you're the United States of America and you're the strongest country in the world, you're the world leader, don't you? I, I mean, I'm being very kind of, you know, almost prejudiced as an American, but you hate diplomacy. Just say, go in there and deal with that. Forget diplomacy. But diplomacy always precedes the war because you don't want to kill people and you don't want your people to get killed. And right now, this is the time for ambassadors. Jesus told a parable one time is to Israel, but it has implications for us. He said, you know, a, a guy leased out his vineyard to vine dressers and they weren't paying him the money that they owed him. And so he started sending his servants and he kept beating the servants and not paying them. And it got worse and worse. And he finally said, I'll send my son. They'll certainly respect my son. And they said, hey, this is the son. This is the heir. Let's kill him and be done with it. And they did. And so that's the kind of world in which we live where God says, I'm, I'm going to send you out. As my ambassadors, and some of you, are, all of you are going to be humiliated at some level, some of you are going to be martyred. That's just the age in which we live. So this is the time for ambassadors. So let me give you a job description for ambassadors. It's at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, 
We are ambassadors for Christ. Then immediately in chapter 6, he says this. As ambassadors, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. In all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, which he means beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. And so this was Paul's idea. He said, this is who you are as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Uh, just know that and then leave it to him. He's the one who sends you. He's sent us, as it were, to, to Hanford, California, to Lemoore, California, to the outlying area. Wherever we are, that's where we've been sent. And somewhere along the line, throughout our life, we're going to experience humiliation for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, and the Bible says, take your stand, watch the enemy flee, think about your ultimate vindication, go and show the kindness of God that has appeared to all men. Amen? Let's pray.